of questions. And uh, so we're going to apologise ahead of time for those of you who don't get your questions answered. So we won't manage to do every, every question. And we want to try and finish by around nine, not have such a late night tonight. Um, but we'll dip in and uh, see what comes. Let's start. <coughs> What what is the dif distinction between feeling and mental formations? Um, feelings are the second foundation of mindfulness, and mental formations are the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So a feeling is very simple. You know, when you look at the body, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling, and the mental formation would be. For example, you know, one of the hindrances is a mental formation. You know, if you're thinking about something and, uh, you know, it can be either a deliberate thinking about something because you need to make a phone call or uh, make, you know, book a train ticket or something like that. That's a mental formation. Or it could be like an obsessive, you know, thinking about something, like about somebody you don't like or somebody you like or anything of that <laughs> nature. <coughs> Have women always been allowed to be nuns slash monastics in Buddhism? <coughs> <laughs> so the the monks order was going for about six years before the nuns order was established in the time of the Buddha. Um it's complicated. <laughs> so in the, in the Pali scriptures, the story, the story that we inherit is that the Buddha didn't want to ordain women and, uh, and was convinced by his attendant to uh, do it anyway. Um, when his um, adoptive mother, so his mother's sister, his mother was said to have died seven days after he was born, and his mother's sister, his aunt, who, who had a child herself, raised him. And uh, she later um, wanted to ordain, and she was like the head of a, a very large kind of household. And they, they say there were about 500 women in the the uh, town where she was living who wanted to, to ordain. 500, the, the numbers are, are, are sort of general in generally in, in the sutta, so it doesn't mean exactly 500, but it means a lot of, of women. And uh, so the, in the Pali scriptures, it, it, the story is that the, that she asked three times when she was when the Buddha visited the town where these women lived, which was his hometown, and he three times refused, and then she led these 500 women barefoot something like over 200 miles to where the Buddha had himself walked and uh, asked again, and it was again refused three times until the Buddha's attendant requested, uh, that's Ananda, Ananda, requested, you know, please out of compassion, and, and that he then agreed, but wasn't very happy about it. That's, <laughs> that's the story we, we inherit in the Pali scriptures, which doesn't really add up very well when you think of it as, you know, it's the Buddha who can kind of decide for himself. Um, 
So they are doubted. This is really so true. So it's, it's yeah. probable probable that that, that <coughs> scripture is is doctored. And uh, there's a a contemporary scripture in Chinese, written down in Chinese language, where it's a similar story, but instead of just the Buddha, when the Buddha is with is is being when Mahapajapati, that his uh, adoptive mother, who's here, is asking. While before going on that long walk, um, there's one. It's the same scriptures, but there's one line that has been that is in the Chinese, which is not in the Pali, which is where um, the Buddha says to her, uh, "Shave your head, wear the wear the saffron robes, and stay at, but stay at home, and practice, and then you will realize the fruit for which uh, we go forth." And uh, three times she asks to be able to wander in the way that the monks wander. And three times he says, you know, shave your head, be a nun, but don't wander. So it would be, uh, one could assume that that is because it's basically it was dangerous for women. And it still is actually at this time in India to wander for many, to wander alone as a woman because uh, a woman belonged to a man. And so if, if a woman was alone without a man, then she was kind of anybody's. So uh, it seems that it was out of um, like care for the for the women that he didn't encourage them to wander. And then Mahapajapati, with the shaven head and robes, and five hundred other women went with shaven head and robes, together walked that two hundred and something miles to show, like, well, you know, look, we can do it too. So, uh, so from that time there have been there have been nuns, but in the Theravada tradition, so that so the the um, nuns' order and the monks' order also spread across very, very different countries. And then we got this uh, division, Theravada, Mahayana, later Vajrayana, which are kind of constructs. The Buddha didn't teach any of that stuff. Uh, it was just the Buddha Dharma. And uh, so, in the, so there have been nuns throughout that time, since the Buddha's time, like, India, Sri Lanka, China, and then going to Korea, Taiwan, and uh, but in the Theravada tradition, the full ordination died out just a, a bit over 900 years ago, and over the last 20 years, it's reviving worldwide. So, uh, so yes, there were, there have always been nuns in Buddhism, and and in the Theravada tradition, it's been suppressed for almost a thousand years, and now like. Like plants coming up through the concrete. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> Could you please give another example of mind states and how to work with them? So that's again this is third foundation of mindfulness, mind states, or like you know, um, different um, qualities which are. Uh, you know, imbuing the mind, like moods of the mind. For example, you know, the mind is contracted or the mind is is liberated. The mind, you know, is imbued with ill will or with desire or with any you know, any coloring in the mind. And and then you know, whatever we are looking at with the mind, that coloring you know, has an effect on what we are seeing. So it's important to notice, you know, if you're observing, if you have, if, if there's something extra 
and that's what what mind states are all about and then once you you see that there is, is something there you know instead of getting carried away by it just you know maybe drop deeper to the second foundation of mindfulness and be with that that feeling you know if it's if it's an unpleasant feeling then just in, instead of you know escaping that feeling and going and indulging in the thought about it and and mulling it over and and you know we just come back and and be with the feeling until it changes so that's how we work with um, mind states or sometimes also we can you know bring up a um, an anti what we call antidote you know if if there's ill will in the mind we can go and uh, um, contemplate the elements and if there is a lust in the mind we can contemplate body parts or if there's sloth and torpor we can or a contracted mind we can contemplate death there's those different antidotes or just basically being just with the feeling that's a possibility as well so just taking care you know that we notice if there's like an something extra mixed in in the mind which we then project onto what we are seeing Third foundation of mindfulness. Gosh. Please say more about delusions, cravings and aversions, desires and hatreds, wanting and not wanting. These are fairly easy to define. That's good. Difficult to discover sometimes. They can be extremely subtle, but what is a delusion? Are the delusions in the mind? Um, are the delusions in the mind? I'm not sure what they're or in the body, only in the mind. Please uh, speak some more about the nature of delusion. So, uh, you know, the the body is an innocent party. <laughs> And the mind uh, gets deluded, and uh, you know, the body is in the mind, and the mind is in the body. It's kind of hard to totally separate them out, but um, one can be deluded in in terms of of thought and perception, and there can also be, like I was saying, about neutral feeling, like under the underlying tendency to neutral feeling can be is delusion. So if if our body experience is almost kind of non-existent, you know, if we're like a little head going around with the body hanging down there somewhere, then there'll be most likely a fair amount of delusion um, or ignorance, I'd rather say, like not, not, not lack of clarity, not seeing, not being uh, aware of what's going on here in the body. And that can result in, you know, just action that's that comes without uh, like not seeing where our our speech and action comes from so if we're not really in touch with the body you know then something happens and there's a there's a feeling arises in the body but we're, we're not tuned in and then immediately you know then there's a thought and then there's a speech action it's already kind of happening because we're not actually tuned into what's going on in the body so somebody very very unconscious of the body could be quite reactive and uh, 
and not really understand why. But if you can be connected with what's going on here, then you see the, or you feel the, the feelings, the reaction, the volition, and then you've got some kind of choice over how you respond. But delusion is really, a, it's, it is of the mind, really, of, of, not, of being aware or not being aware. And it can come in, in many ways. You know, there's the, there's the fog that we've spoken about, the clouds, which are kind of obscuring clarity. And then there's, um, you know, believing in fantasies, like allowing the mind to fantasize a lot and, and believing in them. And then there's full-blown kind of, you know, hallucinations and can go quite, uh, get quite colorful. <laughs> So, but um, the, the the awareness that we bring to that is the important thing. So, a long time ago, before I was like in my early twenties, I I spent some time working in a psychiatric hospital as a volunteer because I was I was interested because I had, there was quite a lot of mental illness around when I was growing up, and I wanted to understand more about what what is it, and uh, I was going to these schizophrenic. Um, forget what it was called now, but it was, it was like an association of people with schizophrenia to talk about, who would meet to talk about how they dealt with schizophrenia. I was the only not one who, going who wasn't schizophrenic at the time. And, and uh, one of the things that they were, that they were kind of, um, one of the skillful means that was taught there basically was don't believe your thoughts. <laughs> That's very interesting. I was practicing already at that time. It's like, oh, this is very interesting. Okay, you know, so the mind comes up with all these crazy things and it's not that you can necessarily stop it happening but you know this is not who and what I am, don't, don't follow it. So you know you can even have very strong delusions going on but you don't, but the, if there's awareness and understanding, it's actually those first factors of enlightenment again, if there's mindfulness, investigation, you know, is this, is this worth following or not, is this beneficial or not and then sustaining that energy then even the most kind of crazy mind states can just be known for what they are and not uh, not under the influence of them. So delusion also can be known, can be, you know, the light of awareness can be shone on delusion. And then that transforms it into clarity. Are some people more suited for concentration practice than others? Yes, I think that you know some people are more suited for it than others, and and uh, I think there is you know different uh, teachers who who have for you know who have different strength because that what has worked for them that's what they know well, and then one just seeks a teacher who is you know who who knows about those practices and. And and does it and and um, you know in in the in the in the Pali canon there is, is that's clearly mentioned you know that there that there is people who have like a, a leaning towards concentration and others have more a leaning towards um, insight and both lead to you know lead to the fruit of the practice if you if you you know follow it.
So a question about doing metta. I'm wondering about the danger of just sublimating or pushing something away when applying metta in particular circumstances. For example, if you develop anger or ill will towards someone f- for, let's say, telling you a lie, wouldn't it be better to deal with the resulting anger or whatever resulting emotion first before offering metta? It's, it's really important that, that metta isn't uh, like a sugar coating of what's going on. So. Um, Yeah, it can, if you know, if one's awareness is is strong and there's clarity, feel the feeling, you know, feel what arises. If, if anger is arising towards if somebody's told me a lie, I'm feeling angry. Feel that first, and then maybe also have a conversation about it. You know, so it's it's not just that that meta is this kind of nice pink blanket that you put over everything. But it is um, if the if if your heart and mind has a strong tendency towards anger, then metta is a good thing to cultivate, because it might be that just we get angry much too quickly, or that we can't control the anger; it comes out, or it's much too strong for the situation. So then metta is like a a balancing force. So there's um kind of a it's like a, there's a unification. There's a um, a breaking down of self and other, a oneness in metta. So you have, you know, in all of these, in all of these teachings, you have to use your wisdom. So quite a number of these questions that I, I looked at them earlier on, I felt like, well, people actually know the answer. They're telling me the answer to this already. They know it. They're just sort of asking, or you're just asking, is it all right for me to use my own wisdom? <laughs> like, yes, yes, <laughs> use it. So, yeah, it's, it's not about, um, it's about, it's about waking up, you know, this, this practice. Okay. Could you say a little about the Buddhist concept of rebirth? It seems like the idea of karma doesn't really work without rebirth. Therefore, would you say that to be a Buddhist one must believe in rebirth? I think that's true, you know, the... the concept of karma doesn't really work without rebirth and you know according to the scriptures the buddha uh you know speaks about you know that he can see you know after beings pass away he could see you know how what what their next uh, destination was according to the you know the actions they have been doing earlier on and but I think one still, you know, can use the Buddha, the Buddhist practice, without having to, you know, sign up for a rebirth, because uh, you know, meditation you can still use, and then you just, you know, leave it as an as an open question and see for yourself over time, you know, if if you know how how it how it unfolds. I myself don't have any doubt about it, according. You know, through my meditation practice, it just makes total sense, really. And the teachers I had, they all also were, yeah, had no doubt about that. So, but I don't think it's necessary, you know, to to believe it in order to benefit from meditation. So it's it's up to you. 
Can you remain some other religion and still be a good Buddhist? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have a good friend in in England who's a she's been a she's a Catholic nun. She's been a nun for fifty something years since she was fifteen, and uh, she's a good Buddhist. She has a good practice, and she's uh, she's a she has a great uh, appreciation for the Buddha's teaching, and for uh, particularly Ajahn Sumedho. One time we were we used to teach with her for every year, and one year she just said, "Thank God for Ajahn Sumedho." <laughs> <It's like laughs> so yeah, you can uh, you know the <laughs> the Dharma isn't uh, isn't actually a religion. The Dharma is the truth of the way things are. So you can any anyone can use that. You don't have to have any. You can be an atheist and use the Dharma. So it's good. It's all. It's all offered. When you investigate a hindrance, how do you keep from getting caught up in thoughts about it? It's all mindfulness, really. So when you investigate a hindrance, and and then you know maybe you get sucked into identification with it. As soon as you notice it, you know, then there's mindfulness and you keep on, uh, you know, investigating. But also, you know, it's not uh, investigating a hindrance doesn't mean, you know, to dwell in, in thought about, uh, to roll in the hindrance, basically. It's, it's to go, go underneath, you know, and see what, what um, you know, what uh, unwholesome root is underneath that hindrance, you know, what sends you into thinking. Is it fear or is it, you know, whatever feeling you don't want to be with, just find out that and then be with that. And and then the, the thinking will slow down, you know. Because the thinking is most often just a defense against feeling and being, you know, being with our experience in the body. And then, you know, again, we, we just lose the connection with the feeling. We go up and think again. And then as soon as you notice it, you just come um, into the back into the body. That, you know, uh, helps us to not get uh, carried away with the, with the thinking process. Can you speak to the role or purpose of dreams. So I know quite a few people have been having uh, having interesting dreams on this retreat, or extreme dreams. And it can be, you know, when we go into a situation like this, or we're also into a monastery, that the the dream state starts to get much more active. So I think dreams have have numerous different purposes and. Uh, you know, you 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 can one can generally tell oneself what's going on. So there's there's just the kind of clearing through the the stuff of the day kind of dreams, and then there's the the deeper unconscious becoming conscious through dreams, and uh, and then there's prophetic dreams. And they seem to be path dreams also, dreams that are connected with entering the path of awakening. So there are different kinds of dreams and they have, you know, I guess, different functions. And of course, and then there's also nightmares. 
um, which are uh, you know dreams that are that are bringing forth our fears or stresses <coughs> and they can be connected with what's going on now or they I think they can also if we're just speaking about rebirth I think they can also be especially with children they can be things that have been brought in from past life and uh, you know they say that the practice of metta the Buddha says the practice of metta is very helpful for sleeping well and for having sweet dreams Wake and waking well sleeping well, having sweet dreams and waking well so if you have a lot of um, disturbing dreams practice of metta is very good and also um, if you can do it uh, lucid dreaming is, is helpful If you, my, my big sister taught me when I was a little girl I used to have a lot of nightmares and uh, my sister taught me how to become conscious in dreams I don't do it anymore but how to become conscious in a nightmare so as to wake oneself up so you don't have to endure the whole thing you can kind of like realize oh I'm dreaming okay I can wake up so that's not so difficult to learn if you have a lot of nightmares you can teach yourself that and I highly recommend practicing metta (coughs) is the door to non-separation through the body one way, you know, not, uh, completely realizing non-separation is is like a synonym for enlightenment. So, you know, all the teachings which we have been giving and all of the other teachings in the canon, they are all about that. You know, strictly speaking, and foundation of the body is is one. Death. We are born with it, we walk every day with it. Every passing day brings us closer to it. It is our companion, (coughs) it is our liberation. Not sure about that. It is our peace. Then why rushing to meet it is wrong? Interesting question. So, um, if if we really pay attention, there are little deaths going on all the time. So there's like, the end of an outbreath and a pause. It's like a death. And then there's like when we leave this hall, it will be the death of this experience we're having together now. And maybe going to sleep. Who knows if we're gonna wake up or not? I don't want to get you all scared or anything. <laughs> But uh, it's like death is like a cessation. So there are there are many cessations going on. And uh, the Buddha is teaching us. He he very specifically mentions different kinds of of um, thirst, like tanha, or thirst or desire. So there's the thirst of sensuality, the thirst of becoming, being somebody, you know, becoming, planning and becoming, and the thirst of of non-becoming or of annihilation. So if we if we want to if we think of death as like liberation and peace and we just want to get there there's an aversion to what's going on now. We're not actually with what's going on here and now. Who knows if death is going to be peace? We don't know. That's why you write rest in peace is kind of may you rest in peace, you know. <laughs> we don't know. 
So, so he was very clear about not, you know, annihilation is not the way to freedom. And becoming and grasping is not the way to freedom, but it's, it's that place right in between, it's the middle way. And the middle way brings us right into connection with what's going on here and now. So if here and now there's life, then it's about being with this. And if here and now we're dying, it's about being with the dying process. But it's about now, about this, not about trying to get or get rid of anything. <coughs> Did the Buddha believe in God? Uh, you know, if my first teacher, for example, Buddha Dasa, uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, he said, you know, you, you can call Dhamma, you can call it God if you want, you know, if that's your way of, uh, if that helps you to connect. So the Buddha was, you know, he wasn't believing in Dhamma, but he understood Dhamma because Dhamma is truth, you know, truth or uh, nature, understanding the laws of nature. So if you want to call, you know, the the laws of nature, some total of the laws of nature, if you want to call that God, then yes, he did. He didn't believe in it, but he knew it. He had faith in it, yeah. Can you say something about what feels like the separation of nama and rupa, that's, that's name and form, while meditating? And there's another little bit. People keep asking us about, I just say it now because it's the third time we've been asked. People keep asking if about the chant that, I think it was yesterday or the day before, the English chant of the meal that I did. Um, it isn't online, it isn't ri written anywhere. And it's a, it's a blessing that's given by the Sangha in, in response to the, an offering of the meal. So, um, um, just, it was given and may it be received. So, to say something about Nama and Rupa while meditating, the separation of Nama and Rupa. So it can be that when we meditate, so the Rupa is form, body and nama is name or it can also be like um, you could say mind what the mind does with form so this is form and and nama is it's a bell calling it a bell it doesn't have to be a bell but I can call it a bell so uh, in meditation it can be that we're just you know floating around in the mind and the, and the body is not very present. Mm. Not sure if I can really answer it actually. What's the question? Um, yeah, I can pass it to you. <coughs> How they separate. Dharma and Rupa. I think when there, there isn't mindfulness, you know, of the body, then there can be a um, like a dissociation, and then there's also there is also when the mind goes into more um, concentrated states, it can be as though the body dissolves, that the the sense of the body sort of falls away. Well, you could say, you know, like rupa is is uh, you know when you're experiencing your body, and then 
you know, in thinking about it would be Nama. And I think that the question kind of doesn't really make sense. About the separating and Nama. Yeah. I think it kind of does, but I don't know what to say about it other than sometimes it's like that. I can see how much work I have to do and long for a teacher for guidance. How does one find a teacher? But it, it, it depends, you know, you can just, you know, look online, you know, who is teaching in the area and then go there, you know. <laughs> That's one way. Or you can take, you know, your life as your teacher. It's another way. Or, you know, you, if you really, you know, feel like you, you, there is a teacher somewhere for you, you could just really, you know, prepare yourself to meet your teacher. And then when, when you're ready, you'll, you'll meet the teacher. I think for me, with my main teachers, is all I have three. I can say it has always been that way. The teacher finds you. You don't have to go out to find the teacher. It's it's just going to happen, and you rec- you'll recognize it. So, if you really long, you know, from the depths of your heart, you just you know, make that aspiration and um, cultivate it, you know, and prepare yourself. And when you're ready, the teacher will appear. And most likely, you know, it won't be what you thought it will be. <laughs> and you might be, you know, it might be not necessarily easy, you know, because if he's a real or she's a real teacher, she'll bring you in touch <coughs> with, with yourself in a deeper way and that might be not what you want. <laughs> <laughs> but what you need. <laughs> With me, it was always like that. <laughs> what of me survives death? And if nothing, what is the thread that connects past and future lives? Is there no essence? So this has come up a couple of times in the, in the uh, interview groups. I think it's one of those questions that, that Buddhists have, isn't it? Because if there's no self, how can there be karma and rebirth? It doesn't make sense. And so the best way I can describe it is, um, so that, so that as far as, like the, the, the Buddha is very clear that there is no essence, there is no essential me-ness. And that what we call me is like a process. And, uh, and, uh, and it, it runs from volition, so volitional intention. And, uh, and unconscious volition, which is why we spend all these hours meditating, trying to be clearer about what our intention is, so that we can have a little bit more clarity about what's going on and where our lives go. And uh, so, when when one when the when the body dies and that uh, volitional consciousness or that stream of consciousness leaves the body. Uh, as long as there's still cravings, as long as there's still a sense of of identification, of of wanting or not wanting, there's still volition. There's still volition. Uh, the, the consciousness is still imbued with volition, and it seeks rebirth. So the, the, in the suttas, it, it says again and again, seeking rebirth now here, now there. 
So it's like it can't until the craving is has been let go of, it's it's going to look for somewhere else to land. And depending on where, what is familiar, or what is it, what is attractive and familiar and comfortable to that consciousness, it will seek rebirth to whatever is most comfortable. And you can see that in your, and you can see it in a life, in your own life. It's not uh, such a mystery actually. So if you, you know, if you have a lot of craving and you keep following that craving, then it'll lead you to more and more craving, and in the end you'll get addicted. And then you, you know, if you keep following that addiction, things start to, you know, your life starts to fall apart. Things get more and more messy, and 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 it kind of drags you into a. Um, even in this human life, it drags you into kind of a low state. And then if you have a lot of craving and then you start, you see that you're going down that route and then you say, whoa, this is dangerous, I'm going to stop here. And you work really hard to change direction. Um, and you develop strength awareness and so on. Then you can, with that same beginning, you, you change the volition and you uh, cultivate like Instead of instead of cultivating more and more greed and sensuality, you cultivate, uh, for example, uh, courage and patience and endurance and maybe generosity. Because sometimes the other side of wanting is giving. You know, so you cultivate wholesome qualities, and then that takes your life in a different direction. So, and then the like nibbana or the, the enlightenment when we're no longer craving, when we're no longer wanting and not wanting, free from greed and hatred, and free from the delusion of this, the conceit I am. It's one of the last things to go. Free from the conceit I am. So that's like a, even just like a location of consciousness. And then, then when, when all of that has been let go of, then there's no more rebirth. But until there is, there's this, there's this kind of continuum, and, the, and it's the best way to describe it is like a candle. So, like the flame of a candle, you could say is like a, what we call a, a person, a self, in the same. But it's not a thing. It's just a coming together at this moment of the wax and the wick and the air, and it's, pro it's a process going on. And, and yet, it looks like a thing. It looks like a flame, but it's a process. And then when it gets to the end. You could get another candle and just catch that flame before it goes out. And then you've got the other candle burning, so that's like the next life. And then do you say that's the same? Is the flame the same flame? Or is it a different flame? Or It's like it's conditioned by the first flame, but it's not the, it's not the first flame. So that's kind of how it goes. Until there's no more fuel and then it stops. Yeah. And the, the, the word Nibbana actually means, you know, to cool out, to to go out. So then, you know, the, all the fuel has been burned up and then the flame is gone and nobody knows where it's gone. <coughs> is there a practice of gratitude? Yes, yes, there is a practice of Gratitude, and it's called Katanyu Kataveti in Bali. And our teacher Arjun Sumedha was kind of teaching that word a lot, you know, mm. because this practice leads to contentment, and contentment leads to peace, and peace needs to collected mind, and then you know it gives a good basis for insight. So, you know, to 
to um, you know recollect the blessings of your life you know that you can come here I mean there's so many people who would not be able to do this you know so that alone is already an amazing um, blessing and to kind of make yourself conscious of that that can really help to, to still the mind so it's a good practice Yes. As you say, just remind, he would say, grateful for this cushion, sitting on a cushion. Yeah, it's really great. And grateful for these clothes. You know, just things that we just take for granted. It's like, oh yeah. Could be sitting on this hard floor. Could be even sitting outside. Grateful for the roof, you know. Just things that we take for granted. Yeah. You haven't said much about mindfulness of breathing. Is it a role also in support of full body awareness? Yes, it is. We have spoken about it a bit. <coughs> um, you know, the whole body breathing. Um, mindfulness of breathing is uh, in the Pali canon is part of the found four foundations of mindfulness. So uh, and it's and it also has a whole sutta on its own, which goes. In. It's one of the few meditation, the few teachings on meditation that is really detailed, that the Buddha, that we've res that has been passed down from the Buddha. Most most of the teachings are quite sort of open source, and the mindfulness of breathing. There's quite a lot of detail in it. So, um, so hopefully you have been mindful of your breath, here and there during this retreat. So. Uh, and it's you know one can be mindful of the breath in as a in a focused way or mindful of the of the whole body breathing. It can be used for concentration or it can be used for insight. It can be used for both. Another and it retreat. would be first foundation of mindfulness. Yeah. yeah. Body. Once you realise you have been identifying as someone particular as some particular role such as the victim, the bad one, etc. What can you do in your practice to release the identification? You know, everything that you have been teaching you can use. You know. First you, you notice it, you, you notice the sinking, and then you, you, you go underneath it, and you notice the attitude you have towards that. And then you, again, you go to the feeling, really mindfulness of feeling. <coughs> That's really, you know, where a lot of the dislodging of all of those patterns has to happen. It has to happen there, you know, the feeling. Because this is exactly, we all run away from unpleasant feeling in many different ways, you know, by distracting ourselves with <coughs> drinking and eating and reading and watching and chatting and, you know, you name it, so many, many things. And if nothing is available, then we can just kind of escape in the mind about it. So we really have to find a way back down into the body and deal with the feelings. And that's why, why all of those, you know, those identification can be uh, let go of by, by feeling, <coughs> for example, you know, being the victim is probably like a, an identification from very early childhood, you know, where we didn't have the understanding, you know, to 
to read what was really going on in, in, in the family constellation. So we took on that, that role in order to make sense of what we were experiencing because you know, nobody told us how to deal with unpleasant feeling. So then, you know, if we are not um, aware of it, then we're going to carry this victim role, you know, for until we die, basically, you know. But if we are lucky enough, you know, that we become aware of it, then we have to undo it by, you know, deconstructing it. And, and the key is to go back and uh, deal with the feelings which were suppressed, you know, which we couldn't, we couldn't work with then. But then we have to do it now. And then over time, you know, we can slowly uh, transform that. And, and then the, there's, you know, this identification with ourselves as a victim slowly is going to, to uh, fade out, you know, until it's gone. This is an interesting question. Isn't the arrangement of the four elements in humans unique? Thus making us different from other sentient beings, perhaps even superior to. My dog, for example, is truly wonderful, but he is never going to cure cancer. This is an interesting question. I think this is the, this is the, um, the, the great delusion of the human race. <laughs> that these four elements in our form is superior to all other forms. And this is why we are, in this grandiose way, destroying planet Earth and many species along with us. So certainly um, we have the, you know, we have this, you can say in a way we're, we're almost, it's like we have these animal bodies and then we have this reflective and creative mind. And then, you know, hands that can do useful things and all of that. So um, there is a difference in terms of the, the, the intellect, but uh, in terms of wisdom, I'm not, I'm not so sure. <laughs> in fact, I quite often think trees are one of the most wise beings on the planet. <laughs> so human beings learn how to cure cancer is that true, isn't it? I mean, you can may, maybe sometimes, but you know, where where does cancer come from? You know, what are we doing to create cancer in the first place? So, um, the four elements are universal. They are just four elements, and human beings really, really, really need to we we need to understand our place in the bigger scheme of things and uh, be a little bit more realistic. Yeah. It's nine o'clock. Okay, could you do one more? Okay, one more. <laughs> <laughs> the Mangala Sutta we chant in the morning says, avoiding those of foolish ways, associating with the wise. I always try to accept people as they are, the same way when I um, how can I how can I do this? I can't read that. 
Oh, the same way when I buy second-hand clothing with a tag on it that says, as is. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I think what what is uh, what is said in 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 the in the sutta is you know it's not that we shouldn't be kind you know to people who are maybe you know displaying uh, you know behavior which according to the Buddha is foolish for example you know breaking the precepts because I think the Buddha you know is concerned that if you you know everything uh, will come back to you in a certain way at at one point so that's why. You know, somebody who lives in this way, for example, you know, doing unwholesome things, the Buddha calls somebody like that foolish. And and I think it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be, uh, we should, you know, not relate with people like this. But it, it means like, uh, you know, taking guidance from those who, who, who um, you know, live in a way which is uh, imbued with wisdom and compassion and then what we learn from those, we can then, you know, pass that on to, to people who are having less wisdom and compassion than, than ourselves. So it's mean, it doesn't mean you know, to judge people, but it just means to not, uh, you know, um, be influenced, I think, you know. So if you, you know, for example, if you find, you know, that, that uh, the circle of people you are usually spending a lot of time with uh, living in ways which are not wholesome, then, you know, if you start to meditate, automatically, you know, your association with, with those friends will, will just, it, it will start to change. And that doesn't mean that the people are bad people. It just means, you know, that your priorities have shifted and and uh, it's just a natural process, really. But it has nothing to do with, you know, looking down on, on those people. But just, it just doesn't go anymore. You know, if you stop drinking and then you go out with those people you normally always go drunk with, you, there's no, nothing much to speak about. At least this, you know, uh, was my experience. That it's just this, these relationships just started to part. Because, you know, people who, for example, you know, t do a lot of intoxication, they feel uneasy if you sit with them and don't do it. And, and you yourself, you're getting bored, really. So it's just natural. It's nothing... Um, uh, judgmental about that. This is just a natural process. So let's chant the highest blessings on the sheet, not in the book, because this is more complete. Residing at the Jetta's Grove in Anatta Pindika's Park, then in the dark of the night, a radiant deva 
illuminated Orchetta's grove. She bowed down low before the Blessed One. Then standing to one side she said, Devas are concerned for happiness and ever long for peace. The same is true for humankind. What then are the highest blessings? Avoiding those of foolish ways, associating with the wise, and honoring those worthy of honor. These are the highest blessings. Living in places of suitable kinds, with the fruits of past good deeds and guided by the rightful way. These are the highest blessings accomplished in learning and craftsman skills with discipline highly trained and speech that is true and pleasant to hear. These are the highest blessings Providing for mother and father's support and cherishing family and ways of work that harm no being. These are the highest blessings. Generosity and a righteous life, offering help to relatives and kin and acting in ways that leave no blame. These are the highest blessings, steadfast in restraint and shunning evil ways, avoiding intoxicants that dull the mind, and heedfulness in all things that arise. These are the highest blessings, respectfulness and of humble ways, contentment and gratitude and hearing the Dhamma frequently taught. These are the highest blessings, patience and willingness to accept one's faults, seeing venerated seekers of the truth, and sharing often the words of Dhamma. These are the highest blessings, the holy life lived without and effort, seeing for oneself the noble truth and the realization of Nibbana. These are the highest blessings, although involved in worldly tasks, unshaken the mind remains, and beyond all sorrows spotless secure. These are the highest blessings, they who live by following this path know victory wherever they go, and every place for them is safe. These are the highest blessings. So to borrow a phrase of West Niska, wish you sweet dreams or no dreams at all.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.